Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with the other co-creator of Bump in the Night, Ken Pondak. We talk about friendship and its role in production, dealing with writing constraints, and the legacy of the show. So sit back and enjoy. Ken Pontak, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We last heard from David Ichoka, who worked with you on Bump in the Night as a co-creator. But maybe you can expand upon what that meant for you two. You know, how was that co-creatorship divvied up? I'm not sure if David told you how long we've known each other. We've known each other since we were like seven years old. So by the time we were in our mid to late 20s, we kind of had a telepathic thing going on. Mm. We knew our strengths and weaknesses. We knew we could say we could get a lot of stuff done without saying a lot of words, which is very useful in a meeting. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm digressing already and get used to this, but we were in a meeting with some executives and somebody who they wanted to take care of our master toy license. And we could tell within 20 seconds at the most that this guy was completely full of shit, but we can't say that to each other. However, we grew up watching Bugs Bunny cartoons together and there was, a. one years ago, obviously, where Yosemite Sam is playing the piano and he asked for Bugs' critique on it. Oh no, he was drawing a picture, that was it. He was drawing a picture and Bugs kind of squints at it and he holds it sideways as he goes, hmm, mm-hmm, hmm, <laughs> it stinks. And so <laughs> yeah. at the meeting, I looked at David and I went, hmm, and he went, mm-hmm. We had basically communicated the fact that this guy was no good. Oh, okay. So you two pretty much have a psychic link at this point. Pretty much a psychic link. And if anything, David veered more towards the technical, and I veered more towards the crazy. Right. Okay. Like crazy in terms of design or crazy in terms of the ideas or how so crazy? When we worked on... Gumby, some years before Bump in the Night, one of my workers in the art department came up with a great nickname for me. She said, your name is Ken, mommy look at me now, Pontac. (laughs) So it's basically, yeah, this sort of idiot man-child, I don't care what anybody thinks, let's do the craziest thing sort of energy. And I mean, thinking back to Bump of the Night and in terms of, you know, pitching the show, like how was that sort of crazy side of yourself infused into it? Some years ago when we were, we were pitching another thing called the Danger Team with a guy named Tony Jonas. Danger Duck is dead. Long live the Danger Team. America's newest safety film heroes. And... I said to him, and this is the first time we were going to be pitching to people in suits. This was before Bump in the Night. Right. And I said, so uh, what, should I get dressed up? Should I wear a suit? And he said, no, I wear the suit. You wear the crazy t-shirt and the buttons and the vest full of toys and stuff. That's your job. So one of the things that we always like to do, and, and this is both of us. It's not like David is a Vulcan and I'm Captain Kirk. Although, if we were playing those roles, that's probably the characters we'd be assigned. Mm -hmm. David has a crazy creative side that is astonishing sometimes. But uh, we would both make sure that we would give an entertaining meeting. We would bring leave-behinds, and we would make jokes, and really make sure that they were laughing. So people would look forward to to having meetings with us. So it's kind of like a Abbott and Costello kind of dynamic that you two sort of had going on a little bit that could be <laughs> Ren and stimpy maybe <laughs> although neither of us works. is a big idiot <laughs> um and yeah i mean last time when we were talking with david he was mentioning that you had known each other since the second grade and he talked a bit yeah. about your friendship how did that turn into you animating together creating comics together and ultimately working in stop motion animation together we were both interested in drawing at a pretty early age. Before we met each other, probably, we had started down that path. And often 
there is one guy in school who's the guy that draws. He's a guy that does the cartoons for the yearbook. Suddenly there's two guys who draw and we were able to feed off of each other's en- energy mm. and we would come home and watch these Warner Brother cartoons religiously till we memorized them and fell in love with the gags and the timing and started to think about making our own cartoons. But even before that, we were reading comic books and we started to make our own comic books. We locked ourselves in my room for almost the entire summer when we were in junior high school and did pages and pages of faux underground comic books because we had just discovered R. Crumb and S. Clay Wilson and those guys. And that blew our minds. We were like, oh, you can do that? So we we had this huge dream of comic books that honed our comic pages that honed our drawing skills. And we started to think about making these things move. And we did some early cell animations. And then we saw Close Monday and saw stop motion animation that was mind blowing and thought that is really something. Will Vinton is a clay animator who's really into his media. Well, for for several years while making live action and a few cell animated films, I was working on a technique of clay animation. It was a technique that Bob Gardner, a sculptor, and I worked on during college. And so eventually we made a film called Close Mondays to sort of show off the animation techniques and to show off what clay could do as an animation medium. So we started to be very interested in that. And we were in art school at the time, Art Center in Pasadena. I don't know if David told you any of this bit of the story. So I had a roommate named Kevin Mack, and he was the effects supervisor on a third of the effects films that you grew up watching. If you Google his name, he's he's been in everything. But back then, he was my crazy roommate at a place we called the, we didn't call it the Gumby House yet because we hadn't met Art Cloakey, but it was this art house that three of us lived in and did a lot of drugs and <laughs> did a lot of art and went to see Eraserhead at the midnight showing at the New Art Theater in Santa Monica. And I don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with Eraserhead. Uh, a little bit. I'm familiar with a lot of uh, David Lynch's work, yeah. Well, this this was the crazy, seminal art film, art school film that he had made that sort of got the whole ball rolling. Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why, we'll elaborate on that. No, I won't. <laughs> um, and we watched that thing and we went, oh my God. And I'm, I'm sure we were on drugs. Kevin and I were probably on acid <laughs> at the time. And the three of us said, let's make a let's make a stop motion cartoon that shows before this. And so we did. We commandeered all of the film equipment and supplies that we could from school, which was great. Making a a film in school is way easier than making it out of school because all that equipment and stuff is there. And we pretty much locked ourselves in one of the little shooting rooms for a couple of weeks. And we made all these puppets and we came up with this crazy animation called Free Taco which was named that because I believe Kevin and David were doing some midnight film run or something, and they stopped at a Taco Bell or a Jack in the Box, and they got free tacos. And we said, let's call the movie that. And that was kind of (laughs) the aesthetic that went behind the whole thing. So we made this film. It showed before Racerhead, and uh, one thing led to another, basically. I'll, I'll truncate this story. We uh, got an introduction to Art Clokey from yep. a woman who distributed some of his fine art films that he had made. I think even before Gumby, he had made these things called Gumbasia and and some other just crazy jazz-oriented, transforming shape type animation. Yeah. So we met him on his birthday, it turns out. And um, once again, I could write a book about this, and people have said I should – I'll just say one thing led to another, and we ended up moving to the Bay Area to work on The New Adventures of Gumby, where David was the art director, or I was the art director, and David was the line producer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, uh, 
I mean, you, you hear stories like that of people meeting up in art school, staying together, working together. What's it like for you to have had this long lasting relationship um, with David? Oh, it's extremely gratifying. And as a matter of fact, well, besides the fact that we've been through so much together, mm-hmm. we, I was able to go to a Hollywood meeting knowing that if I left the room to go to the bathroom, not everybody would be talking shit about me and trying to stab me in the back. There would be one person in that room I knew would remain the same friend that I had when I was in the room with them, which is a rather cynical thing for me to say about Hollywood, but also more or less true. So right there, it's great to go into the room and know that you've got somebody who's basically your brother mm-hmm. who will have your back on stuff. But this this friendship thing, I like to keep friends for a long time. When David and I were in high school, he was the editor-in-chief on the school paper, and I was the feature editor. And um, once again, the sort of Spock and uh, Kirk roles. Um, And we gathered everybody in the room, because we were a very tight group in the the school paper. We were all the sort of smart, smart misfits who hated the jocks and were kind of the freaks and the intellectuals. You know, we were the fake news, except (laughs) uh, we were real news and there actually is no such thing as fake news. But we gathered everybody together and we said, you know, this is such a great scene. And one of these days we're going to have another scene when we're out of school. And, you know, we don't know if it's going to be a a magazine or a movie or a TV show, but we're going to want all you guys to work on it. And they're all like, yeah, 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 pull the other one. So flash forward, oh, don't make me do math, but um, out of uh, out of high school and working on Bump in the Night, and we needed somebody to create a frame-grabbing system, which didn't exist then in any commercial form. What is that, by the way? A frame-grabber is a device where, okay, let me backtrack. Back in the day when you were shooting animation, stop motion animation on film, you would move the puppet. But if you didn't have things like surface gauges or physical objects, like a little pointer to show where his nose was before you moved it for the next frame, you wouldn't know where his nose was. So you would literally have to have these physical objects, these surface gauges on the table to show where your action was. I can't even believe how anybody could ever do that. My (laughs) mind, I just get hot and dizzy thinking about it. And we said, wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of a system that could take a frame, the frame that you just shot, and save it, and then you could toggle back and forth between what you just shot and where your puppet is now on a live feed, and mm-hmm. you could actually see that. And now they have frame grabbers that will grab everything. You know, it's not just one frame; it's and everything's digital, so you can you can go back and erase the work that you some of the work you've done and start over from a, a certain position. But back then, this was a novel concept. So, we had a friend who was on the school paper named Alex Hansen, who subsequently worked on Star Wars, not the movie franchise, but the government satellite program. He was a rocket scientist, a literal rocket scientist. And we called him up and he can tell this part of the story much better than I can, but very surreptitiously, surreptitiously, he had just been let go of his job. He was wondering what to do next. He was in San Diego. What's next in my life? The phone rings. It's me and David saying, hey, remember that conversation we had at the paper about hiring people? you want to move to San Francisco and build a machine that has never existed for a stop motion animation? (laughs) And so he did. Friendship is really important. Keeping friends, trusting friends. We, from the point of Gumby on, we kept a pretty tight crew of regulars and new blood and other people, old blood would move on to other projects, but it's good to keep a core group. A lot of the Coen brothers do that. I think Tim Burton does that. Henry Selleck does it. Lots of people do it because you build that telepathic bond that I was talking about earlier with mm-hmm. everybody yep. and things just move more easily and more harmoniously. Yeah. 
And I mean, David and I talked about the sort of collaborative spirit that existed on the sort of the bump sort of set and and between the yeah. crew. Um, but I guess one thing that he did say was that he said that when it came to Mr. Bumpy's design, that was kind of all you and you were inspired <laughs> by, uh, yeah, Arkham and service countercultural work. Um, but maybe, I mean, you have Mr. Bumpy with you. Could you sort of walk me through like how a design sort of came about? Like what yeah. went into him? And also if you, uh, if you go to my Facebook page or I can send you some drawings, I have a lot of the early designs, scanned in. Although I have to say that Squishy took a while, but Mr. Bumpy burst from my brow like Athena from Zeus. I pretty <laughs> much knew what he was going to look like. The thing that started the the whole idea, the operating principle, was we wanted a big, crazy, animatable face with arms and legs to pick stuff up and move around with. But mostly we wanted a big expression, expression of face. So we knew that was going on. The day that Bump in the Night aired on Saturday morning, my mom called me up. And she said, Jesus, Ken, you've been drawing that thing since you were seven years old. <laughs> and because it was the greatest day of my life. And I had to twist a knife in my mom during my moment of triumph. I said, yeah. And remember how you used to tell me to stop drawing monsters and draw something pretty <laughs> like a horse or a flower. <laughs> and, and she copped yeah. it. She said, yeah, yeah, I, I was wrong. So I'd kind of been drawing this thing one way or another pieces of it for quite a long time, even before, even before crumb. And once, once I discovered crumb, it was, there it was. I mean, I, Jim Woodring did some lovely, lovely drawings of Mr. Bumpy uh, for production purposes. But I could also see R. Crumb doing a killer Mr. Bumpy. <laughs> Maybe a bit of a, a darker Mr. Bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mr. Bumpy is has a very particular look. I don't know of another show that has a character that looks like him. But something that's unique about him, though, uh, too, and unique about Bump in the Night is just how musical the show is. You know, yes. there's, a, there's a musical number in almost every episode. There's karaoke. I mean, you know, why did you want to have such a musical element to the show? It never occurred to me that we should do that. It was entirely the executives at ABC who wanted music in the show, I think for merchandising purposes, honestly. And the I wrote a version of the original title uh, song, but when ABC hired Jeff Moss, who was a brilliant writer-composer who worked on Sesame Street, he did It's Not Easy Being Green and you know all these classics, he took that those lyrics and changed about 90% of them. But he did keep a hook that Jim Lathan and I came up with and bless his heart, he gave me some credit on it. So I got the ass cap for it. I'm a wild green guy living under the bed. I got a little sock before you turn your head. Like a boat to light, I'll make your heart jump. My name is Mr. Bumpy, I go bump, bump, bump. Yeah, bump, 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 Once I started writing the songs, I realized how much I loved doing it. And Jeff left the season, the series after season one, and it was up to uh, me and David wrote uh, a couple of them too. It was up to me and David to write the rest of the songs. And I found out that I absolutely loved it. And as a matter of fact, my dream job would just be writing songs and collecting royalties. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're working with some pretty, you know, seminal voice actors as well, like Jim Cummings yes. and Rob Paulson. I mean, what was it like to, I guess, compose music for them to sing? Like, what was that, that the process like of hearing your words that you put onto a page be sung out by them? Well, it was great. Those recording sessions were probably the high point of the series. Flying to LA every week or two and getting in that room and seeing these guys in the booth, just bringing it to life. 
and singing. We had no idea these guys could sing. When we when we hired them, we had gone through a week of auditions with everybody in town. Ginny McSwain was our voice director. And, you know, we had Mark Hamill and Sally Struthers and, you know, everybody, Dan Castaneda, everybody came in. And we didn't know who most of these people even were. And then Jim came in and he did something that was just phenomenal. And I had no idea who he was, although I'd actually written lines for him in the past that I didn't know that he was reading when I, I wrote for Mighty Max. Uh, he played the sorcerer called Raven Dark, and, and Rob was was Mighty Max. So right, there you yeah, go. So. Uh, you know, those two reminded me of David and me. Basically, they they riffed off each other, and they just harmonized. And uh, so Jim is uh, he does this thing during auditions. I said that is really good. Can you give me ten percent more Tom Waits in there? And I said that's the voice. Now, Rob, to my memory, he just picked up the sides and channeled Squishy. And so at the end of the week, we hired them. And Ginny said, I could have saved you a week and told you that those are the guys, but I thought you should discover that for yourself. And they truly were the guys. So when we brought them songs to sing, they would figure out the harmonies and come up with some of the most brilliant ad-libs. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the song H2O, but at the end of the song, Squishy starts talking about being sanctified, and just he just starts riffing, and it's perfect. It's astonishing. And that just, that just came out of Rob's brain almost in real time. So I'll, I'll just give you the short version and say it was incredible listening to those guys sing the songs. It gave me goosebumps. And Jim Latham, our underscore composer, and I also worked together just like a symbiotic being. I mean, previous to that experience in the second season, though, had you written much music before? Like for other shows? Oh, no. No, I um, I'd never written any songs. I mean, what was the process like learning that, though? instantaneous. I had always enjoyed writing verse. <laughs> I remember in English, I had AP English in high school, and our teacher was really into symbolism. Correctly so, I might add, when I look back at the things that she was talking about. But I was a smart-ass know-it-all. And I was all about, uh, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> and so we had to write, we had to write a a poem in, I forget what, what meter it was, the boy stood on the burning deck meter. And so I wrote, uh, the boy s sat in his English class, his eyes were wet and sad. He knew within his hearts and heart of hearts, the symbols weren't so bad. Yet if he heard much more of them, he surely would go mad. And <laughs> I wrote this, this whole poem about how she was driven into madness and just became this like bag lady living on the streets because of, because of finding symbols. And it was very smart-ass, but it all scanned really nicely. And I realized that I really enjoyed wordplay. So I guess there's always been sort of a, a musical part of yourself that you were able to channel into that second season of Bump then. Absolutely. And uh, the more I did it, the more I loved it. I wrote a song for a show called Lazy Town uh, called You Were a Pirate. Do what you want because a pirate is free. You are a pirate. You're a pirate. Being a pirate is a recipe. I wrote it in Iceland and then went back home and kind of forgot about it. And about a year later, I, I thought to myself, I wonder how that song came out because I, I left before they recorded it. And I got on YouTube. It turned into this insane meme where just one of the postings of it had like 38 million hits. Hmm. And it turned into, you know, just there's mashup versions and covers and it's this crazy thing. So, like I said, I would I would just write music all the time if that's what I could, was able to do. So pivoting back to uh, writing and your sort of career as a writer, you know, you've written for both shows and video games. 
Um, but when it came to bump, like, was there something particular that you want to infuse in every episode? I, I noticed that there's usually sort of a, the arc in the episode goes that, you know, there's something goes wrong between either squishy or bumpy. Um, so there's a conflict and then eventually there is a resolution with kind of a lesson that's sort of learned at the end of it, either about you know, responsibility or friendship. Like, what were you trying to infuse into the episodes? Friendship, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, uh, everything is a mirror of everything else. Bump in the Night was about me and David, basically. Uh, I'm probably a little bit more like Bumpy and David is probably a little bit more like Squishy, but I would not assign those characteristics specifically to either of us. But we wanted to do a, a show about friendship. That really, I think, drives the episodes. That and just how crazy can we be? What's the biggest take we can come up with? Uh, you know, we I think we were a little ahead of our time, honestly, because there weren't a lot of shows like that. I don't think there was anything like that back then, really. Um, some aspects of Pee Wee's Playhouse, maybe. But uh, it wasn't until Ren and Stimpy and, you know, the John K stuff started coming out. And, you know, now Bump would look, well, he still wouldn't look like all the other stuff, but it would be more of that mindset, more of anything goes totally crazy and friendship driven. A lot of the shows are friendship driven. I mean, I could see Bump of the Night now slotting in perfectly on adult swim like yes in my mind. yeah yeah start a petition <laughs> <laughs> it's, i will it's in it is incredibly popular with the people who know it and then everybody else has never heard of it um one thing i want to talk to you as well about is you know you had an interview from a little while ago with otaku usa i mean and you talked a bit about your experiences as a writer you know dealing with you know censorship either from advertisers or the network or anyone that you would work with did bump the night receive any kind of pushback uh when it came to the initial you know design of the characters you had mentioned that abc really wanted music you know was there anything that was really kind of you had to sort of pull yourself back with bump of the night design wise nothing for bumpy Hmm. he was he was fun they i think they really liked bumpy for squishy I remember being in, talking to the executives and saying, can we really have a character named Squishy who lives in the toilet? And they said, as long as he isn't brown. Okay. And David and I exchanged a glance and telepathically agreed that we would not even ask about corn. Mm. Although I have to say, I have on my desk right here, a food duplicate of Squishy wow. for a season three episode. Can you see this? Yeah, I can. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, and, and you can see he has corn for hands. Yeah. He was, um, it was a decoy. And okay. uh, he's made entirely out of foodstuffs. I love this thing. Uh, I talked to David about this as well, about sort of the, the lost third season. But how was that yeah. going to be used in an episode? Ah, oh, what was it? I think it was, it was... This amazing team-up episode, I believe, where all the villains were ganging up to capture Squishy and Bumpy for God knows what nefarious purposes. But Sleemoth and Gloog were there, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I forget who some of the other villains were, but um, the the bad germs from Microbia, I think, and whoever. Right. And... Uh, they needed they needed a decoy, and so they made they made food duplicates. I'm not sure there was one for a bumpy too. I believe they made food duplicates of themselves, and um, just so basically the bad guys would jump on them, and yeah, I don't know they could drop a piano on them or whatever <laughs> whatever was going to happen next. But it was uh, it was nothing. It was never even meant to animate. There there's no real armature in there. Right, it's yeah, just, yeah. just a, a thing. A thing to draw attention to it. Um, and let me let me get up for a second. I'm going to show you something. Okay. Because we, we did get pushback on Molly, who was initially a character we had never conceived of. This is the original design for Molly, sculpted by an amazing artist named Lori Washbon. And as you can see, she's a little bit more angular, a little less huggable, uh, skinnier. She has an X for an eye. Um, honestly, I think uh, this is a, a better design. 
I, I like it better because it's it's not so treacle. But Molly's character was pretty treacle. So the uh, executives at ABC, Jenny Trias and Linda Steiner, really wanted to have a female character to round yeah. out the show. Now, David and I didn't grow up hanging out with a female character. So we went, okay. And I'm not sure how we came up with the idea of a rag doll made out of spare parts who had been loved so much that parts would fall off and they'd be replaced. Except the fact we wanted something that was freaky looking. And uh, this is before Toy Story. So there, there wasn't, there wasn't this done by Pixar yet, as far as, you know, all the different pieces put together in some monstrous toy. Um, and so we ended up with Molly and it took a, it took a bit more iterations back and forth until she was the lovable, huggable character that she is now. Now push back on the, the scripts. We got lots of, right. I, I had never dealt with a censor before, because the first, very first script I ever wrote, I wrote one episode of Gumby way back when, and that just came from a clueless place. And it, it, was, it was not a good script, although it was a trippy episode. But there was no pushback because I was Gumby. I wasn't trying to do anything with any sort of edge or social content or anything. And I don't even know... Uh, Art Clokey was the one dealing with any network notes. So if he got any notes, I never heard about them. And then Mark Zaslov, who ended up being the story editor for Bump in the Night, was working on Mighty Max. And between the time that we sold the show, we sold Bump in the Night, and the time we started getting paid for it, I needed money. And I said, Mark, I'm dying here. Can I write some scripts for Mighty Max? And he said, Sure. Uh, have you ever written a script before? And I said, no. And he said, well, I, you know, I saw the pilot script that you wrote for, for bump. Cause I, I had to write a pilot script for bump, which was the first script script I'd ever written because you can do it. I know you can do it. So go ahead. So I wrote some mighty Mac stuff. I resolved the conflict in the first episode I wrote by having the Viking sorcerer Raven dark played by Jim Cummings. Although yeah. I didn't know who he was at that point. Take a cursed knife and commit suicide. <laughs> now, you can't do that now, and I'm surprised I could do it then. And there, if there was a note on it, I never got it. My first notes came from Mary Conley at BSNP at ABC on Bump in the Night. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. I actually compiled a list of all the best Best now. I mean, back then they were they the pissed worst. me off quite a bit. Right, yeah. All the all the best of the worst into an article called "Please Delete the Following," which has been published in Harper's Magazine, a volume called "Maldicta," which is the International Journal of Verbal Aggression. Uh, it's been another book that Carl Cohen wrote called "Censorship." It's it's been around, and when I look back at it now, it's like yeah, you know, some of those notes made sense. You probably. Probably making fun of Ebola isn't the best thing in the world to do. And yeah, I guess I guess anorexia isn't a laughing matter. But uh, 90% of them were just like, what? Are you kidding me? But uh, it all came to a head after I wrote a song called In the Porcelain, which was a song Squishy wrote about how great it was to live in the toilet. Yeah. And it was just an adorable song. I think it aired. Yeah, yeah, it aired. It was a second season song. And uh, when Mary got the lyrics, they came back to me and she had written at the end of every line the word no. Just no, no, no. Not just no at the top or no at the bottom saying, can we talk about this? Just no, 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 no. Which to me was like, no, 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 no. And so I said to her, no. So... The song went to, to New York, right? where decisions are made. And at New York, they decided that the song was fine. And I ended up changing one word in the song that actually made it better. Okay. And from that point on, Mary hated me even more than 
she already did, which I thought was as much as anybody could ever hate anybody. Mm. I mean, when it comes to that kind of aggressive sort of uh, changing of your of your writing and, and sort of censorship, I mean, you could maybe look at it as a kind of adversity that you had to learn to work with. Um, do you think it actually, I mean, it must have been frustrating, but did it help in the end in any sort of way to have to think creatively of like, how can I do this differently at all? Well, we always came up with something that was at least as good, if not better. Mm. It was it was definitely a challenge to make that to fill that hole with something better, like that uh, that Japanese thing where when a bowl cracks, they mend it with gold veins so it becomes even more beautiful. Now David said something that was it was just genius. Genius things would fall out of David's mouth all the time, and I was working on a script. And I said, oh, I just came up with a joke that is so fucking great, but Mary's going to take it out. And David said, write the fucking joke. That's your job. It's Mary's <laughs> job to take it out. And I thought, yeah, that's right. Write what you think is funny and within reasonable bounds. And I have always, even when I'm writing preschool these days, I'm always kind of known as the guy who pushes the line. Mm. That's that's one of the things that I'm proud of, that I'm known for, and that I've tried to do in every aspect of my life, yep. including and sometimes especially in my writing. And I mean, one more thing in, in terms of writing that I want to talk about and, and definitely a show that would have pushed the line for a lot of broadcasters like ABC is, is you guys are uh, the writers on Happy Tree Friends. <laughs> uh, with Mondo Media, and uh, I'm not sure if uh, people know that there's a connection between Bump the Night and Happy Tree Friends, but there it is. I mean, <laughs> you know, was it kind of freeing to have that sort of, you know, sandbox of YouTube of online animation to just go wild with? Freeing is not an expansion of enough word. Mm. It was... It was unbelievably liberating. Next to Bump of the Night, which was the greatest job I ever had because I've been drawing that thing since I was seven years old, Happy Tree Friends was the best gig I ever had. Great guys, a writer's room where we would laugh so hard it would literally hurt, which is sort of makes sense for Happy Tree Friends. Uh, anything goes. No censor. Like, like, Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, we steered by our own moral compass, which was entirely broken, but uh, pointed in the right direction. There were only a couple of rules that we had. No guns, because a ballistic solution is just too easy. No, no talking, obviously. Uh, no drugs, which was a rule that I broke at least once when Flippy went to his medicine cabinet and he was having a PTSD episode and he just needed to take pills and um, no sex, mm. I believe was the fourth one. Uh, besides that, anything, anything goes. And if we could make ourselves cringe, we knew we had gold. Uh, I want to pivot into talking a bit about stop motion animation. Bump of the Night came out in 1994, which was kind of on the cusp of 3D animated shows really making it mainstream. You know, I'm thinking about Reboot and Shatterator, yeah. which you actually both wrote on, uh, wrote on both of yeah. those shows. Um, I mean, when you guys were coming out with this stop motion animated show, did you feel any competition with the emerging 3D animated shows that were coming out? No. More the merrier. The only competition that I think we ever felt with anybody was with Henry Selleck, who at the time was doing some features that needed animators. And several of our animators left Bump in the Night to work there or chose to work there instead of working on our show when we were recruiting them. But besides that, I loved the idea that there was a show like Reboot on. We were back-to-back -back with Reboot. And as a matter of fact, another aside, they had a character that was based on that Mary Conley sensor that I was talking about oh. named MC. Bob, the acts are terrible. 
And the ones I do like, MC rejects. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. I don't feel competition with anybody about stuff that's cool. Uh, the more the merrier. Initially, I'd asked David um, a little bit about the um, sort of disappearance of stop motion animation on TV these days. And he corrected yeah. me really quickly saying that, no, there's actually a bit of a resurgence in it. And he mm -hmm. talked about, you know, um, Robot Chicken and Cosmos, the series that he had worked on, and the, you know, stop motion animation there. There's a show called Tumbleleaf that's won multiple Emmys. Brilliant, beautiful little show. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, in your experience as a stop motion animator, um, what do you think's leading to this sort of resurgence of the art form? I couldn't say. Maybe a hunger for something that looks different, but these days... CG and stop motion are almost visually interchangeable or can be. Mm. And as a matter of fact, the stuff that they're doing at Leica is. I don't know what is CG and what's a puppet and what's a replacement face or, you know, it's, it's amazing what they do there. I could only assume based on where I'm coming from that, People might want to do it because of a love of the medium. Mm -hmm. Although when I say a love of the medium, because I do love the medium, it's also pretty much the stupidest way to make a film that there is. Uh, uh, something that really struck me when I was looking at a fishing tackle box full of replacement eyelids that were the size and shape of a baby's little fingernail cut into descending crescents. And how it was somebody's job to make those all day long because they would instantly get lost or broken by the animators who all the way back during Gumby days, we referred to as puppet wreckers. Um, <laughs> and I, by the way, I love you all animators, but you are puppet wreckers. And I remember looking at that box going, is there a harder way to do this than the, what we're doing here? Uh, and that being said, you're in Santa's workshop. It's a great place to to show your friends and relatives where you work. I don't know if financially, depending on how you're doing it, it there might be financial benefits to stop motion, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, I couldn't say. I honestly, I don't know what, what would drive any resurgence mm -hmm. besides possibly financial considerations right i mean one thing that i had remembered was when paranorman was coming out they started talking a little bit about how they're using 3d printing in their workflow to make the replacement yes. faces for the characters so it's not 3d printing in the same way that you know the the it's being you know easily printed out by like a the the, the plastic that they use it's a different version of that but i mean that's really high-tech stuff and yes i watched some behind the scenes stuff and they talked about you know, how many rare earth metal, you know, uh, magnets they had, how many faces they had. They have a production line that is gigantic. It started out with 8,000 pounds of printing powder. 77 gallons of super glue. 300 puppets. 40,000 faces. 50 stages. 5,000 exacto blades. 66,400 rare earth magnets. 729 sheets of sandpaper. Two gallons of white resin. 25,000 purple nitrile gloves for safety reasons. You need a massive warehouse? Yeah, you need a lot of room. Put those all together and bake for 127 human years. Got yourself a stop motion feature. I'm thinking more about like, you know, some people on YouTube who I've followed and, and have watched their videos. There's one YouTuber named Cranbercher and he makes his uh, puppets out of uh, felt and he replaces the faces with like pieces of paper and like he creates this really fluid looking animation and he even did an internship at Leica as well. So, I mean, I'm just wondering kind of what the game changer has been. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you pretty much hit it. The fact that anybody can do it at home and depending on your materials and your design and your technique, it can be incredibly inexpensive and yet brilliant and emotional and do all of the things that, characters are supposed to do and stories are supposed to do. So for the the person sitting at home wanting to do some animation, 
that would be my suggestion and my first choice, unless you're really facile with computers and and mm -hmm. building wireframe puppets and all that kind of stuff. Um, but stop motion, there's something magical about it too that differs from from any other form of animation. I remember we were at Gumby and Art Cloakie and I were having one of our metronomically scheduled disagreements. <laughs> we fought all the time. And it was getting pretty hot and heavy there in the office. And all of a sudden, this tape came in from this guy named Tim Hiddle, mm. who was a fry cook somewhere in the Midwest, I believe. And we put the tape in the VCR, and this character named Jay Clay started jumping around. And it looked like it was a little homunculus that he had made out of his own flesh and blood and just animated through the force of his will. It was, it was magical. And he had done it on his kitchen table. It was, it was that thing that I was just talking about. It was, it was crude and beautiful and astonishing. And we, we stopped fighting. We were just transfixed. And Art said, mm. get this guy a ticket to Sausalito. And that's how we met Tim. And I don't think there's another form of animation that just has that that tangibility you know that i'm holding this in my hand and i'm going to put it on a table and touch it and by touching it i'm going to bring it to life hmm. getting into sort of the, the final stretch here i mean what do you think is uh a lasting legacy of bump in the night as a show hmm. wow i know without a doubt that we have touched people in amazing ways and as a matter of fact i'm now going to read you a couple of letters sure because i know i know that um this this show has inspired people like all over the place so here's one from a gentleman who wrote my son who has multiple medical complications received a stuffed animal as a gift that turned out to be his absolute favorite it happened to look a lot like Mr. Bumpy from Bump in the Night, so that's what we called it. When my son has had to go to surgery, which has been numerous occasions, Mr. Bumpy always goes with him. The doctors, surgeons, nurses, everybody knows that doll by name. One night in the hospital, while our son was very upset, my husband thought of this series and looked it up online. We found clips that got us through that rough night, and once home again, started our search for the series, hoping it was on DVD. He found the series on Amazon, and we purchase it immediately. We now play it any time our son is upset or feels bad. At first, he was amazed to see Bumpy on TV and still in his arms. Now it just calms him. So that's beautiful. You know, you you can take that to your deathbed and and think, okay, well, I think I did it. And that's just one of the letters like that that we get, that we have gotten, and even continue to get to this day. Uh, I meet people who tell me that I was the architect of their childhood, that they grew up watching Bump in the Night and it was their favorite cartoon and it changed their life and it inspired them to do this and that. This is from a friend of mine who I met on Facebook named Molly Lenore, who has hair, these multicolored dreads that uh, are very Molly-like. <laughs> and so... She, when she says like the hair, she's responding to an image that uh, was my avatar at the time where I had this wig that was once worn by Elton John oh. um, that is like three feet of orange hair that goes straight up. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Okay. But she said, and, and uh, by the way, the Drew she refers to was a guy named Drew Davidson who worked on Bump in the Night, who was a mutual friend, okay. introduced us. So she says, hello, Ken, like the hair. That was so nice of Drew. So nice to meet you. Been a big fan of your work. I love Bump in the Night. In fact, when I had to pick a name for myself when I transitioned, I picked Molly. Molly Cottle was a doll made of different parts, kind of like me. My last name, name Lenore, came from Edgar Allan Poe. It all came together quite well. Oh, I changed my name because I'm a male-to-female transsexual. I really hope that you continue to create such a creative, innovative, imaginative work. Sometimes it seems like the industry is going backwards or worse, pushing forward further into a world of mediocrity. And then she goes on and talks about herself and her company and stuff. And we have since become friends. 
So things like that make me, I forget how you phrased the question, but make me understand that this show has had an impact on many, many lives and continues to as mm -hmm. new generations view it. I am green and I am blue. Come thin and thick, we stick it through. We go together, me and you. But, but why, why do, do you like me? Sure, we could find a reason, but why should we try? I just like you, and who cares why? <laughs> You're all right with me, Squish. You're my best friend, Mr. Bumpy. Finally, uh, were there any final thoughts you want to share um, before we say goodbye? It occurred to me some years ago when I did the math, and I'm a writer, I'm not a mathematician, but I did the math and I figured that the radio waves from the broadcast of Bump in the Night had at that time reached the first potentially habitable planet that we knew of. <laughs> and I like to think that maybe a religion was started because of that, <laughs> or a war, or at least some alien kid was inspired to do something cool and funny because he saw it. I mean, have you, have you ever watched Galaxy Quest? Yeah, I actually thought of that before Galaxy <laughs> Quest. I just re recently, with my wife, watched Galaxy Quest again for the umpteenth time. Yeah. That movie holds up. It does. That movie, if anybody is reading this interview or listening to it or however it is going to be disseminated, and you are feeling the doldrums, don't even watch Bump in the Night, which will probably cheer you up. Watch Galaxy Quest. That movie will make anybody with a beating heart feel happy. Mm. And if Bump in the Night's uh, radio waves have reached them, then maybe you'll have some aliens knocking on your door at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cool. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend over the social media airwaves, and be sure to subscribe. And stay tuned for our next episode.